Happy Sunday. So glad to be with you. If this is your first time, I'm Kyle. I'm a pastor here. As a part of our continued worship this morning, would you please stand with me if you are able? Yes, if you're on your like on your sofa or at your coffee table, stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from our teaching text today. Back in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1, this is what we read. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. By the way, that's funny. We pick up in verse 4. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said, and they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. A couple weeks back, I was walking around the East Village with Tom, yes, that Tom, Tom Clegg, and we had got some tea from Gong Fu, which by the way, if you've not had tea from Gong Fu, it is delicious. I would highly recommend it. So we're walking around the East Village and we're having this conversation and we find ourselves in the parking lot behind Gong Fu. And near the end of this conversation, I don't remember what spurred it. Tom asked me this question. He says, well, what do you think that you do with the majority of your time? And I want to submit that same question to you today. What do you think you do with the majority of your time? If you're like me, it, it kind of spurred these interesting thoughts. I, I was like, well, what do I do? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. And I started to collect all of these scenarios of, of throughout my day. What do I actually do? And, and before I could get an answer out, Tom graciously told me, he said, now, uh, Tom does like life plans and coaching and things like this. So he's in these scenarios quite often. He knows this information. It's, it's fantastic to have him as a friend and a member of our church. Uh, he said this, you make decisions. What you do with the majority of your time is you make decisions. Some researchers, this sent me on a little bit of a rabbit hole, so some researchers estimate that we make some 35,000 decisions a day. This is staggering. Some of these are conscious, like what shirt are you going to wear? And others of them are unconscious. For example, whether you're going to like scroll on Instagram during this talk because you've habituated that into your life. You, you call it multitasking, but it's really distraction. Uh, see, if this, if this figure, this 35,000 decisions a day is accurate and you figure we sleep, I don't know, seven-ish hours a day or something like that, then what that works out to is roughly 2,000 decisions an hour or get this, one decision every two seconds. 
And this is not meant to stress you out or make you obsess over every little minutia in your life. It's just to illustrate a point that we made last week that is still true and still relevant to our teaching text this week, namely how we live has a direct impact on who we become. See, this is true both for the big things, the big decisions, and the small ones. It's true for the conscious and unconscious decisions alike. Point after point in the gospel according to Mark, which is where we find ourselves this week, where we've been since the beginning of 2020, draw us to a point of decision. Will we, for example, like the rich young ruler, will we, like him, receive Jesus's invitation to go sell all that we have, give it to the poor, and in turn have, you know, this uh, riches in heaven? Will we go, sell, give, and then come and follow Jesus? Will we be willing to do that? Will we receive Jesus's invitation to be silent when we need to be silent, to speak up when we need to speak up? Will we stay still? Will we go? Will we decide to follow Jesus? And that's the question before us today. Will we continue with Jesus along the way? Will we decide to stay with Jesus? You see, as we enter chapter 11, just remember that that Jesus, the, the one whom we've given our allegiance to, if we follow our, call ourselves a follower of Jesus, that Jesus, throughout the gospel according to Mark and all the gospels, is living into the heritage of the prophetic witness of his people. Really, that's a, a fancy way of saying that Jesus is out there healing with, with authority. He's teaching with authority. He's casting out demons. He's operating in the power of God to perform signs and wonders and miracles, the whole kit and caboodle. He is also doing some other stuff, some stuff that is not deemed so miraculous. He's interacting with all the wrong people. He's with the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the outsiders, the riffraff, if you will, the misfits of his day. I mean, in the scene just before this, at the end of chapter 10, uh, do you remember what went down? Yeah, Jesus is is there. They're moving. They've moved down from the Galilee. Now they're in Jericho. They've gone through the town on their way up to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they're leaving the town. And there, on the outskirts, on the side of the road, person who's been sidelined for his blindness, the son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus, is there. And this man, who's been sidelined for his lack of sight, is. He's given sight by Jesus, and he's given sight by Jesus by faith. More so, he follows Jesus by faith. This is the type of people who are with and around Jesus. And this scene specifically, the one that precedes our teaching text today, it is upside down and polarizing. And yet the most significant thing to note is is how this scene turned up the volume on who Jesus really is specifically like around his identity. You see, it wasn't uncommon for God to manifest his presence through his prophets. We, we see with Moses that Moses with a staff is stat, like hitting rocks and waters coming out. He's parting the seas. We see Elijah praying and, and the rains stop. We see him pray, fire comes down and engulfs a whole thing saturated in water during a drought. Miraculous things happen through God's prophets. So it's not uncommon But what's interesting about this interaction with Bartimaeus, how it turns the volume up on Jesus's identity, is what was uncommon was the healing of the blind, people regaining their sight. 
And Jesus does this very thing. In fact, when he does it, he, he turns on, he activates the prophetic imagination of the people back to a famous prophet, the prophet Isaiah, who in Isaiah 35 reports what, what's going on. And listen to this. This is Isaiah 35. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with in the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And look at the marker of God's salvation. Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the layman leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. See, through the prophet Isaiah, God is speaking that with the return of his presence, yes, comes hope and salvation, but that's not just some metaphysical thing like out there. It's real, it's embodied, it's bodily restoration that comes on the scene when God is there. So for Bartimaeus, in this interaction with Jesus, in an instant, activates Isaiah 35 and sets in motion what's to follow, namely, our teaching text. In other words, as we meet Jesus here today, there's no doubt that Jesus is a prophet. No doubt at all, but there's this thing lingering in the air that perhaps, just perhaps, he is more than a prophet so with that in mind, go back and let's hear the beginning of our teaching text again. Verses 1 through 7, we read this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, which is uh, the house of the early fig, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. You know, picture the scene here. Jesus is coming from Jericho up this, this journey up from Jericho to Jerusalem. And it's from this dry, arid desert to when they get to the Mount of Olives, it's like the first time they're going to be amongst vegetation. And it's this crest of a hill. And looking over, you can see through the valley, the Garden of Gethsemane, where all of the olive groves would be, you see this glorious scene of the walls of the city of, of Jerusalem. And you'll see there, and seated in the center, the, the temple of Yahweh. This is the scene they're beholding, and Jesus now sends them these two ahead. And he says, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing it? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. So, what'd they do? Verse 4, they went away, found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. They untied it. Some of those who were standing there said, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go, and they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it. This would be like a saddle for this colt. And he sat on it. So, so this is an odd story if we think that this is some sort of transaction where Jesus just wants to ride into the city. He's, maybe he's tired of walking. No, no, no. There's so much more going on. And to help us see that, let me just ask you, are you aware of an artist named Banksy? If you're not, you're welcome. Uh, just Google him, not now, after the teaching, uh, and enjoy the next hour and a half or so of just looking at his work, reading about his work, maybe even watching a little bit of his documentary or something. You see, Banksy is um, known, and specifically one of his most notorious stencils, you'll, you'll see it here, 
It depicts a youth throwing flowers in the fashion of a Molotov cocktail. His work is evocative and it's a satirical commentary on capitalism and violence and health and war, the gamut of human experience. It's done on these huge canvases, the, the sides of walls and buildings and bridges. There's even this one where he uh, goes to Disneyland and he brings with him the parts of a mannequin and then he situates at the base of Thunder Mountain like a mannequin covered with a orange jumpsuit, a black hood, hands tied and knees bowed. And it's a scene from Guantanamo Bay. It's like, this is the type of provocative art that Banksy is doing. And some love him, others disdain him, but seldom do I mean, I don't, actually, I've never met a person who is like neutral on Banksy's art because he's an artist with conviction and convictions about the way that the Western powers behave in the world. And he has something to say, but he does it through these performative acts. And so with those convictions in hands, he, he stages elaborate works that make you question your own values, that make you reconsider your daily decisions. He, he inserts himself into the 35,000 decisions that you make a day and makes you reconsider what you're doing with your life. Here's, here's my point. What Banksy has been for the past 10, 15, 20 years in the West, Israel's prophets were for the people of Israel, for the, for the Hebrew people back in the days before Jesus. If you don't believe me, just go to Isaiah chapter 20. It's a short chapter and read how God commissioned Isaiah to walk around naked and barefoot for three years as a rebuke to the people of Israel for their seeking comfort and safety in foreign nations rather than in God alone. It's, that's d divine performance art. This is how a Hebrew Bible scholar Tim Mackey describes this divine performance art. He says, the visual nature of the prophet's presentation made his message unmistakably clear to a people who were notorious for muddying the waters of God's word. The Israelites could choose to ignore the prophet's words, but they sure couldn't miss them. See, this is often why you'll hear something like, uh, okay, Preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. The, the idea is that we embody the life of God as we receive grace from him and live out of the abundance of that grace. And now, that little quippy statement of uh, preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. The, the gospel is, in its definition, a proclamation, which is our word, so kind of falls short. But I think we get the sense here that, that this is what Jesus is doing. In fact, it's thought that Jesus staged this whole elaborate scene to echo the prophet Zechariah. There's this famous prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, and it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, when Jesus sends his disciples ahead to get a cult, this symbol of peace and piety from Zechariah 9, Jesus is entering into this divine performance art. These, he's intending to activate the imaginations of all the people around to show them what it means for him to be king. 
to show them what his words have pointed to this whole time. You know, it's interesting that many scholars note that Jesus' like his entry, it must be read against the entry of the powerful. What do I mean? Uh, well, there's another story that's off the pages of the gospel according to Mark. We know from history that Jesus' entry is not the only noteworthy entry this Passover. Uh, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate made the trip down to Jerusalem from his uh, swanky digs up on the Mediterranean coast. So he's coming into the city, and as he entered the city, he did so on a stallion. Armies arranged, armor glistening, like the full display of Roman imperial pomp and pageantry are coming as Pilate comes into the city. It, It's basically a way of saying, look at all that we have to keep you in your place. After all, Passover, if you're unfamiliar with Passover, go back to Exodus and read through that account. Uh, Passover is a story of deliverance. It's the story of of, uh, God delivering the people out of slavery in Egypt. It's a story ripe with political tension because it's a celebration to remember and never forget God's deliverance. In other words, Pilate comes to town with a a show of force, and that's not how Jesus rolls. Jesus' entry is a subversive entry. It's undermining. The irony is that Jesus undermines both Rome and Israel. We'll get to that in a moment. See, Jesus' entry is subversive because his peace and his kingdom, it doesn't come at the threat of a sword. Notice the contrast here. Pilate coming in from the west, Jesus coming in from the east. And if at first this seems really insignificant, like what does the geography have to do with anything? Well, this is huge because Jesus is tapping in. Remember, he's activating the prophetic imagination of the people. And the prophetic imagination holds within it the hope of God's return. In fact, the the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 43 sees a vision of God coming back into the city, down off the Mount of Olives, where Jesus is coming in through the East Gate. Pilate from the West, Jesus from the East. And that's not all. Pilate comes in on a stallion, Jesus on a colt, one the symbol of war, the other the symbol of peace. Pilate comes with an army, Jesus comes with this band of misfit disciples. See, the contrast of kingdoms could not be clearer. Or so you'd think. See, despite the clarity of Jesus' performance, he's riding on a colt. He's, he's enacting this divine performance. Halt. The whole thing, it seems like the disciples want something more like Pilate than Jesus. And this is what, what I mean. Look down with me at verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Have you ever sung that song at church and you're not really sure what you're saying? You're saying, save us, save us now. And this sounds good, right? Well, remember this, that throughout the gospel according to Mark, Mark's literary device to to show and note who is actually following Jesus, who Jesus' disciples are, is to say that they are with Jesus. In this instance, there are people ahead of Jesus and there are people behind Jesus, but no one is with Jesus. The people are crying out, calling aloud, save us, save us now. They're laying their cloaks down for Jesus as though he's on a stallion. 
but he's on a cult. In essence, this is a rally cry to Jesus. This is, this is them try, trying to like rally the crowds up to, to, to signify this is a moment where Israel could throw off their oppressors. So this is a rallying cry to throw off oppression, not a decision to follow Jesus. The evidence of this is that at the end of this Passover week, the same people who are calling for Jesus to save them are the ones who will call for Jesus to be crucified. This is not a decision to follow Jesus. See, all along, Jesus' predictions of his death, what uh, the theologians would call the passion predictions, we just worked through them, chapters 8 through 10. In all those instances, Jesus is met with ignorance and opposition. Just think back on this. The first one, Jesus is up, Mount of Transfiguration. They, they behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Boom, Peter goes, oh my gosh, you're the Messiah. Fantastic, good job, well done, Peter. Then Jesus predicts how he will be, what it means for him to be king, what it means for him to be the Messiah. And Peter rebukes him, opposition. Second, the second time this comes up, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest among them. Ignorance, the most recent one, James and John demand that Jesus do for him whatever they want. Ignorance again. See, now Jesus displays what his words have pointed to all along in this divine performance art. And essentially the same thing's happening. Ignorance to the way of Jesus. And I just... I want to pause here and linger here for just a moment. Has Jesus' way this whole time surprised you? See, we're reading this. We're reading the accounts of this. Like, of, of course, this is the way of Jesus. Like, how don't they get it? Have you asked yourself that question? Maybe I'm the only one who's been like, can't these guys figure it out already? That is the moment where Mark has us where the question is turned back on us of like, oh, oh, would you do it? See, the critique of the disciples is a critique of us. This is an indicting story. But, but, but we ought to be gracious to the crowds and gracious to, to the disciples because Jesus is hitting all the resonant Messiah notes. Surely he is the one who will bring God's salvation. And, and he is, like, he is the one who has he is the one in the story who will bring God's salvation, but it's just that he's come to do it in a different way. He's come to die for his enemies, not to kill them. Jesus has come to stand against the, the full torrent of human evil, to stand against the full torrent of our evil, so that through the cross, he could dismantle sin, this, this reality, this thing that in, is deep in the marrow of our bones. Any failure to reflect the image of God in nature, attitude, or action, Jesus has come to dismantle that. He's come to dismantle Satan, the accuser, the one who lives to accuse the saints of God. He's come to dismantle the Satan. And he's come to dismantle death itself by dying to death. See, the only thing that death can do is kill you. And Jesus in the power of God is raised from the dead to dismantle it at the cross, but it comes through the cross, not, not the other way. See, if this is where Jesus is headed, namely the, the cross at Calvary, will we continue with him along the way? This next verse is telling. 
Go with me there, verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is as anticlimactic as it sounds. There's no teaching. There's no healings. There's no nothing. Jesus comes in. He takes a look around and walks away. All the pomp, all the circumstance have seemingly evaporated. Do you just, this smacks of irony. God's anointed one is literally standing in the place where in the Hebrew imagination, heaven, God's space, and earth, human space overlap. It's where the presence of God is meant to reside and now God's anointed is there and it's absent. Where, where are all the people? See, this is brilliant on Mark's behalf because what it, what it creates is a tension for us to go on. <laughs> See, o- over these next seven days, these next few chapters, or for us what will be the next four-ish months, Mark is going to unravel slowly but surely what it means for Jesus to become king. But this giant question mark at this point is what's going to happen next? And my guess is that the majority of you You didn't show up today like hopeful to hear a subversive teaching on what is normally the Palm Sunday text. (laughs) Like you're not like, oh, I didn't expect this. Uh, This is different. Because if we're honest, most of us come into a space like this and we're wondering, okay, how does this matter to my job or whether or not my kid will sleep through the night or, or you're saying, I would love to have somebody to have kids with so I could worry about whether or not they sleep through the night. So what does, how does Jesus's subversive entry into Jerusalem have anything to do with me following him now? Like, of course I follow Jesus. Yeah, let's move on to the next one. Well, let me just ask you, and don't say aloud, I guess if digitally you're alone in your room, you can say aloud. Um, Would you rather win or lose? If you're American, most likely you have been trained from the womb to have a winner's instinct. That instinct drives you to align your whole life, like the modes of living, how you speak, how you vote, how you play. You're like driven to align your life with the things that will give you the greatest opportunity to succeed or, or to say it another way, to flourish. And of course, conflict arises because there's differing definitions of flourishing and success and there's differing ways to order the world to get there. I mean, do we not feel this deep in the marrow of our bones right now? There's an election ahead of you, (laughs) election ahead of me, uh, and election ahead of our country. Conflict on every side. So, so with that in mind, let me just translate Jesus's little divine performance art here. You You could maybe even hear it saying this. Losing is the new winning. In the eyes of the world, losing is not the new winning. Losing is losing and winning is winning. That's why Dale Earnhardt is famous for saying, hmm, second place is just the first loser. That is the ethos of our times. (laughs) It's the thing that's deep in our bones. So knowing this, would you consciously decide to realign your life to lose? If that language is uncomfortable, maybe Jesus' language will help you here. Are you willing to lose your life in order to gain it, to set it aside to gain it? 
you're working on a on a sale to a client, a big client, and you find a discrepancy in the numbers that could risk you losing the sale, potentially losing the account. So do you do you fudge it? This isn't not this is not like an overt kind of a, a reworking of the numbers, just an omission. And of course, now you're rationalizing, right? You're like, well, if I do that, of, of course I'll tithe that. And I'm, and you better tithe your sin money. You, you can't tell, but that's a joke. <laughs> don't, like, we don't want to do that. The question is, what decision are you going to make right there? You're a parent. You've worked hard all day long. You've been chasing toddlers around or you're working to quote unquote provide and now dinner is over. Do you check out and you say now it's a little bit of me time and you just go on Netflix? Or, or, or do you check in? You lean in. You get on the floor. You get your hands dirty. You help with the homework. You, you have the hard conversations. What decision are you going to make? You pick up your phone. You read another infuriating thing because such is the internet. You immediately go to your social media platform of choice to uh, vent about what you just read. What do you do? Do you actually post a thing or do you put your phone down and do something productive with your life? Like what decision are you going to make? We could do this for the rest of the day, could we not? Like my point here is that our life is full of decisions full of little forks in the road, apparently 35,000 of them a day. The simple question of this story is this, though. Will we choose to remain with Jesus on the way? See, will we choose to remain with Jesus on the way even when the humiliation of the cross is on the horizon? See, I'm compelled now more than ever that the way of Jesus is the best way. Not just because it makes me the best, but because when we continue with Jesus, we get Jesus. You know, in Jesus, we have the one who counted equality with God to be nothing, so that in him, we could taste the fullness of God. Or or, or you might have heard it this way, he made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. See, it's not just that. It's more than that. But the problem is, the tension is, it's just not how we want it. Because this pathway of humility and obedience, it's not triumphal, it's not powerful, it's not gl- it's not glamorous. It's lowly, it's humble, it's even despised. And so this week, like t- today, perhaps right now, this question will present itself. Will you continue to follow Jesus? So this is a call to fidelity to Jesus. This is not a call to grind it out in your own strength. This is not a resolve of the world. This is like the empowering presence of God with you. Will you decide to keep in step with Jesus, even with the cross on the horizon? See, this this is a call to find a way, namely the way of Jesus, to flourish right now. Not where we, like, not where we want to be. Eugene Peterson in his like, brilliant book, Run With Horses, is a book about God's people in a place they don't want to be. He says this, and this just caught my attention, and this will bring us to a close. The only place you have to be human is where you are right now. The only opportunity you will ever have to live by faith is in the circumstances you are provided this very day. This house you live in, 
this family you find yourself in, this job you've been given, the weather conditions that prevail at this moment. This is what you have, church. Right now, this moment, this is what you have. So in this, will you, will I continue to follow Jesus? To say yes is to affirm that God is with you. Come what will. To say yes is to embrace that weakness in the economy of God is actually the pathway to strength. To say yes is to resolve in our hearts to be with Jesus. So let us, church, let us, by the grace of God, receive his way even when it feels upside down. Let us be with him. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We come to you. We ask that as we respond to you that you would spur our hearts, that you would spur our hearts to to have a greater resolve to trust you, that, Lord, that we would push back against the way the world that says triumph and power and prestige and position and control, and would we relinquish our control to you? Would we relinquish the illusion of control to you so that we might be with Jesus to keep in step with him by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way in us. Come, we pray. Amen.